and welcome to season three of Community Voice. Today, we have JP Hernandez on the podcast. JP founded American Dream Clean, and he's here to tell us more both about the company and himself. Hey, JP, it's great to have you on the line. Hey, Thomas, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. So where does JP come from? Oh, sure. Yeah, I um, was probably in about the third or fourth grade and everybody was picking up nicknames back in that time. And I was at the time I was going by John Patrick. I needed a nickname and, you know, the easiest one available seemed to be JP and it's uh, it's stuck ever since. <laughs> so it's stuck ever since. Yeah. Speaking back, where are you originally from? And then also, what made you choose Bowdoin? I'm actually originally from Maine. So I I know there's a lot of pine trees. Um, It it gets pretty cold. But what else would cause someone to want to go to school in, uh, in Maine? So early on in life, I was a bit of a nomad. My father worked in the pharmaceutical industry and Really, just as kind of a life choice, uh, he pushed to ensure that the family was traveling and that he was getting international jobs. And, you know, that was great. It was pretty enriching. We, we had an opportunity when I was young to be in places like Indonesia, Singapore, Geneva, which I think, you know, probably informs some of my values today and why I'm maybe doing some of the work that I do. But, you know, certainly a broadening and, and fun experience. But I think actually of the Boston area is home. Most of my roots are there. It's where I went to high school and where most of my close family and relationships are, you know, that's where that's strongest. And in a lot of ways, Bowdoin was a natural fit having graduated outside of Boston, you know, was desirous on the one hand, an education that I thought would be a very strong liberal arts education, which I think uh, Bowdoin certainly offered. At the same time, I was a two-sport athlete in high school, and that was a big part of how I thought about myself at that point in my life. And Bowdoin was also a small enough school that somebody like me could still kind of compete and do, do two sports. As it happens, Bowdoin turned out to be um, a little bit different than I expected. I, I ended up really gravitating much more to the academics and, and other things and ended up only doing a couple of years of, of sports. But Bowdoin was, was really an attractive place. And, and uh, it's hard to believe I'm going to be going back there for my 15th year reunion next summer. And I, and I can't wait to get back. That's great. And what did you study at Bowdoin? And then was there a specific class that you think made the biggest impression on the future you, you know, 15 years on? Yeah, also a great question. And I'll level with you when I, when I say that I don't know that I'm great at sort of tracing some of this biographical stuff back and really you know, sort of highlighting the aha moments or something. But certainly one of the things that stands out is getting onto campus as a freshman and just feeling like everything that I was exposed to was opening my eyes and just lighting a new fire and and so on. Just getting exposed for the first time to some big ideas, whether that was in sociology classes, psychology, history, you name it. But also, I think at that point, attaching to the idea that this is a complicated world. We've got a lot of hard, nubby problems that humanity hasn't really figured out how to deal with yet. And I think, and also, I think connected to that, attaching to the struggles of, you know, the underdog, working folks and and people that were having a harder time of making it in this world. And my thoughts across a lot of my studies at that point in time gravitated to those sorts of problems. Why is it that we're, you know, here we are in the richest nation humanity's ever seen, 
And yet we have sort of countless social problems that hold a lot of folks back. And so I don't know that I'm not giving you the best answer here, but I don't know that I could point to any one particular class. But, you know, again, sort of this constellation of experiences that were really opening my eyes around that period of time. Yeah, that I think makes a ton of sense. Kind of more of a mosaic of different experiences coming together. Moving on to graduating from college, you made the decision to go to another small, similarly uncontroversial institution within a New England hamlet. I'm talking about Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund. What made you choose to go to Bridgewater? I actually came back to Boston after college. And, you know, I thought at that point in time that I wanted to chart a path in law, but I, you know, decided to work as a paralegal and sort of try that out before I committed to law school and that whole longer term path. I'll spare you the gory details, but basically that became a period of struggle because I realized that that really wasn't going to work for me for, for a variety of reasons. But I still kept coming back to these questions. It was, it was increasingly obvious for the way I was spending my discretion. I'd come home after work and I'd be dwelling on social problems and increasingly thinking that maybe there's a, a path through those that business can help with. And at the time anyway, I didn't feel like I was ready to go start a company you know, out of my apartment or something like that. It just didn't, it felt like I needed a richer set of experiences. And I had a friend at the time, Bowden friend, who's still one of my very best friends who said, look, Bridgewater might be an interesting place for you. You know, the 27 year olds are running the place. I mean, they give them a tremendous amount of responsibility. It's all very smart, high-powered people. And there's a, a certain culture here in which you're going to figure out what you're made of. Very open and honest feedback, but it was the sort of environment in which I felt like I was going to figure out what I was made of, get the kinds of responsibilities and opportunities that might set me up well for ultimately what I am doing now and, and you know running my own business and trying to build something from scratch and all the rest. I don't know how much you want me to carry on about Bridgewater. It's a really unique place. And I would say largely delivered on the kinds of things that I was looking for. Um, as I go about my day-to-day -day now running my business, there are just countless times throughout the day where I'm drawing on you know, the kinds of principles, the kinds of lessons I learned from Bridgewater. So, It sounds like at a place like Bridgewater, which again is kind of macroeconomic research and also very transparent, you were able to kind of through that find a focus to start to kind of embark on the future of entrepreneurship, which seems yeah. like an interesting kind of dichotomy. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I don't know that I gave this enough consideration in my initial comments. So at the time when I joined Bridgewater, it's a very different place 10 plus years after. But at the time in about 2007, when I joined, Bridgewater was sort of in this rapid growth phase. It had emerged from sort of being this boutique in the corners of the investment world to really increasingly a powerhouse that wanted to become a long-term institution and so on. And they realized that the path through that was going to include developing rigor and talent in, in the management space. And so my roles were not researching the global economy and how to you know make bets in the markets and, and so on. My roles were in um, client service primarily, also in certain areas in technology, and as part of a program that Bridgewater developed to train up its future set of leaders that they, they aspired to one day run the company and this sort of thing. It's comparable, maybe you might argue, to something like what GE and some other companies are known for doing in terms of cadre of, of management folks, rotate them through the company so they develop 
the portfolio of experiences and knowledge of the business. And, you know, over time, some emerged to key leadership roles in, in the future. So, again, that was the thing that got me hooked on Bridgewater was the unique culture plus the opportunity to take on those kinds of big management jobs that I, I didn't know how else I would get. Uh, or it certainly would have been a unique opportunity to get that sort of thing and then get prepared for you know, ultimately what I'm doing today. The opportunities weren't held back by seniority, given right. both the culture and the growth. So moving on, you leave Bridgewater and it sounds like you have a plan to start a company. Did you write it up on kind of a business plan format? How did you come up with the idea for American Dream Clean? There's a slow arc to this. And so it it might be a combination of I don't necessarily do a great job with sort of tracing these biographical details. But also, you know, just again, I believe it really did take quite a while for this to emerge. So if I rewind back to before I joined Bridgewater and I'm and I'm in this period of stuckness where I'm working as a as a parallel, not happy with it and so on, I was seeing this sort of burgeoning space that we, uh, I can't remember if it was called this at the time, but, you know, social enterprise, this idea that a hybrid approach in which you're fusing the best of what a business can do and the best of what a mission-driven organization can do, sort of one plus one equals three, where you're taking the strengths of business in terms of, you know, its efficiencies, its ability to generate profits and resources, but also the kind of heart and caring that comes from having a a mission. So we've seen in the years since then, much more tangible, successful examples that that fit that model. So places like, let's say, Warby Parker or Tom's or or household names in a way that they weren't back then. But I was beginning to see some of those early signs that there, there might be this alternative way to get after solving hard social problems that not, doesn't have to necessarily be government, doesn't necessarily have to be just nonprofits and so on. I was really in this period where I was at Bridgewater, but also then sort of constantly rolling around in different possibilities. I was looking for my one plus one equals three. Where is there some combination of a business and where it has a certain set of, let's say, weaknesses that could be then solved or offset by the strengths of what we would conventionally think of as a nonprofit and putting those and, and, by, and vice versa, meaning that the strengths of the business solve some of the weaknesses of the mission. And so it really was more just rolling around in different permutations and options. And I wouldn't say where there was any one eureka moment. I just, I was studying these different possibilities and eventually seized on the core idea of American Dream Clean as I was seeing a potential one plus one equals three. Because if I can take a minute on American Dream Clean, you know, really what we're, our core belief is that you can have, on the one hand, what looks and feels like a conventional commercial cleaning business where going into offices and schools and the like, and we're doing the sort of nouns and verbs you would think of in a cleaning service. We're taking out the trash, we're you know vacuuming and so on. And so from one lens, we look and feel just like a conventional cleaning company. At the same time, we're making choices about how we utilize the resources the business generates. And those choices include that we're really focused on the future and prosperity for our employees and their children, making sure that the frontline employees we have These are low-income folks, oftentimes uh, immigrants, minorities. We know that they face a series of challenges in terms of how do they actualize a better life for their kids and breaking a cycle of intergenerational poverty. And so our view is that if we can utilize some of the resources the business creates to make sure their kids have a path to college and career through tutoring, through mentoring, through a variety of things, 
then we're going to have a workforce that you just can't beat. We're going to have people that don't just have a J-O-B. They're going to be working with blood and sweat and tears for you. So there's this sort of one plus one equals three thing where every time we are doing a cleaning job, we're likely to do it at a level where we have the systematic advantage in which we're going to outcompete our customers by delivering better quality that's still a very good price because we have such high engagement from our employees. Now, at the same time, there's this sort of virtuous cycle where every time we're doing better work and generating new business and all the rest, it's allowing us to do more good and to have more impact for our employees and their families. So that's the basic idea. And again, I'm sort of digressing here, not on your original question, but it really didn't emerge from sort of a eureka moment or something like that. It was this belief in the big idea of social enterprise, which again, I got exposure to you know, maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago as I was beginning to contemplate those things. And then just being patient and looking for, for the opportunity and eventually it, it gelled. That makes a ton of sense. And not to kind of be cynical, but one of the things when I hear about social enterprise that I always wonder and more importantly, weighted probably towards inception and startup. When you first go out and try to get business and customers, which foot do you lead with? Do you say like a conventional company, hey, we we have the best service, best prices. Do you bring up the social aspect of what this customer is potentially doing as kind of part of the service? Or is there a fear that not being, you know, just a purely profit motivated company would scare off a customer? That's one of the things that would be interesting to kind of get your perspective on given that you've been through that. It's a great question. And um, something I think we're still learning and, and wrestling with. One of the idea, big ideas that I've bought into very heavily early on is a guy named Simon Sinek. So he's got this one of the most watched TED Talks, and he has this concept, which he calls Start With Why. And I, I won't digress into explaining this at length, but his basic view is that people don't necessarily buy what you do, they buy why you do it. And so his whole notion is lead with why. And again, I won't sort of elaborate the whole thing, but he's got a beautiful TED Talk that exposes the whole thinking to this. And I would say that that by and large works for us, that if we start with we're more than a cleaning service and we explain to our potential customers that, look, every dollar you spend on this cleaning service is not just going to get you a great you know, result. It's also going to help you spend your dollars in ways that have a beneficial impact in the communities in which you operate and so on. I think that does tend to resonate and, and we do tend to lead with it. That said, the thing that I think probably holds that back the most is that I'm describing something that's largely outside of our potential customer's experience, right? They haven't seen anything like this before. It's um, maybe a little bit hard to believe that something like this could really exist or work. And so often we'll do with, with a customer like that, who's just maybe more of a hard-nosed person, more rooted in there, you know, just what their experiential wisdom would tell them about, look, cleaning's a tough business and I just want a good result at a good price. Just imagine the enormous advantage I have over my competitors in delivering you a great service, right? Everybody else is just promising you to come to the building, clean it, and go home. What I'm telling you is that I'm working with a degree of caring and consideration for every person that works for us to make sure that they have a better life, that their kids have a path to a future that's, that's brighter than the one that they have for themselves. 
And so just tell me, you know, if you've got that kind of a workforce, who's going to deliver a better service for you? Is the guy who's doing the conventional cleaning going to deliver a better service or will I? And I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to say, gee, probably that workforce that's got so much invested in the families has a systematic advantage in delivering better quality. And so for those more hard-nosed people or those folks that may be a little bit less inclined to, to see the, the, the broader picture I'm drawing, that's where I'll often go with those folks. That that might be a first stab at your question. I think it is. And on the other side of it, so that's externally facing customer acquisition from also, I think, in this industry and in many service industries, I know employee retention is always an issue. And I'm assuming that providing you know tutoring and education must definitely help defray the worry about employee retention, given that that creates a commitment outside of, you know, as you said, a J-O-B or, or a paycheck that really helps differentiate your company. Yeah. I think you're describing one of the key assumptions about why, in terms of execution, any one particular client or any one particular opportunity could break a different way. But just thinking about it almost like a, you know, almost like a machine, which machine is going to perform better or something, that you're getting at a very clear advantage in the machine that we're building relative to what the conventional cleaning companies are, are building. That that what you want in a service business like cleaning is somebody who walks into the room that, that they have a responsibility to clean and that they care, that they're going to work their butts off, that they're going to do a good job, et cetera. And we know this is, on the one hand, the most important thing that cleaning companies need to do. And at the same time, it's the thing they struggle with the most. So the depends on who you ask, but the industry turnover in cleaning is something like, on an annual basis, something like 300%. So the, the, the conventional cleaner, I mean, you know, any one might be better or worse, but the average conventional cleaning company is just not producing consistent, reliable quality. There's just no way you can when people are the most important ingredient and they're so uncommitted to the work that they're doing. Yeah. This is an early track record sort of thing. We've been at this uh, you know, before years or so in November. What we see is that on the one hand, I will have a certain amount of what I would call desired attrition, meaning we're human. Every once in a while, we'll bring somebody into the organization and it's not a great fit. We hired somebody and we just got it wrong or, or whatever. But in terms of undesired attrition, we, re- we really hardly see that at all. It's, you know, it's near zero in terms of if once we find somebody that is a fit for the job and who's tapped into what we're doing with the mission and they're seeing that their kids are getting benefits and that there is this care that we, we have for them, we just don't lose those people. They really are feeling like they're tapped into something that's bigger than the job. It's, you know, to use the language of employee engagement, they've got, they've got a calling. They don't have a job. And so those folks really do work with blood and sweat and tears for us. And they, and they stay with us for the long haul. Yeah. And I know that on that topic, our Wesleyan chapter had worked with you on ways to differentiate certain characteristics or attributes in the hiring process that would help lead to really successful relationships for the employee and American Dream Clean and a long-term relationship. Could you share what some of those characteristics and attributes of, you know, a good employee have proven to be? Yeah, and certainly I should probably also make sure to to compliment the work that the Wesleyan team did and you know it's it's a pretty impressive work that they did and it's worth it's worth elaborating on some of that. What I think is a common mistake in hiring is that people will specify the skills that they're looking for. 
not think about the underlying quality. I'll use some language that we used to use at Bridgewater, which is abilities and, and values. So skills are relatively easy to develop. They might take, you know, if you needed to learn, let's say, management, you know, that's a skill. And you can go get an MBA or you can get a few experiences managing. And now you know something about management. But there are underlying qualities that you need to be a great manager, strategic thinking or empathy for your people or you, you, you name it. Those qualities, which are harder and slower to change, are actually, I would argue, much more important. They're much more predictive of long-term success in the role. And the same could be said then for, for cleaning, where I think you know it's very easy to specify things like, well, does this person have experience using cleaning machines or you name it? But it's harder to ascertain, is that somebody who's, for example, a very detail-oriented you know, almost nitpicky person who just needs it, needs perfection, will strive for that, won't, won't stop until it's just right. Is that somebody who has a high degree of responsibility? These are roles where oftentimes you're working independently. Maybe you're in a building at night on your own and so on. So you need people that have that sense of caring and commitment and so on. And so we went through a process with uh, Wesleyan where we specified the kinds of qualities that we were trying to hire for there were two basic problems. One was, you know, there's only a handful of people, including myself, that could be doing interviewing. And that capacity was going to be greatly below what was going to be necessary to, to actually sort through candidates and do a good job and really get to know them in the kind of way I was describing. Not, not do you know what a cleaning machine is, but, you know, do you have, you know, detail orientation and these sort of things. So there was a problem there. And there's also a problem, not to digress, but increasingly the literature shows uh, the guy who used to run people analytics at Google, a guy named Laszlo Bach wrote a book about this, that so much of what we think of as the way to do interviewing in terms of a person sits down and they size you up and so on, so much of that just doesn't work. Um, the, the, the science is pretty clear that it's, it's alchemy. People, Everybody thinks that they're good at doing this and then nobody really is actually all that good at it and so on. And so the idea is to pair the best of what sort of algorithms can do with what humans can do. We had those problems, and we sort of tried to apply that to to our situation by saying, let's let's be as rigorous as we can about, on the one hand, specifying the criteria that we have. We want somebody who's you know detail oriented. Well, what are the types of questions that we can systematically ask candidates that we think have some predictive power around detail orientation and these various things we're looking for? And so we developed that, and we developed. Uh, sort of a survey in which we now are able to intake pretty much a limitless number of candidates. And they all then get automatically scored using this sort of predictive science to then say, who are those most promising candidates? And of course, I had a heavy input into this thing, but I really have to applaud the work that the Wesleyan team did. They really took sort of this rather abstract goal. They built something that we still use to this day to help us make hiring decisions. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not at the level now where I can like the way that a you know, mathematician or something might like, a statistician might like to say, well, okay, you know, your algorithm, algorithm really does outperform by these levels or something. But I can just tell you from my experience that when I take somebody in through that process and I say, okay, I'm going to go talk to the people that scored the best in that in terms of those algorithms. Very rarely am I having a bad conversation. I'm talking overwhelmingly with people that I go, yep, this looks like the person that we need. And so it's been a wonderful um, accelerant in our ability to get to know the right people, identify them fast, and then get them into jobs as those emerge. So it's really been, I'd say, a fabulous success in terms of what we're able to do with the, the Wesleyan team. 
That's great. And I also want to recommend that listeners go to your website and see the video that the team helped develop. I think it really encapsulates the soul of your company and it's a powerful video. Moving on to a little bit of a broader question that we like to ask business owners if you were in charge or had the ability to change any regulation that would just instantly make your life as a small business owner easier, what would that be and why? I do think that there are probably things that if you want to incent small business, if you want to incent innovation, there are almost certainly like the example before of how do we get more of, of talent to different you know communities and so on. I think there's probably plenty of room to think about better ways to do that. I'm to some degree an accidental entrepreneur, for example. You know, I had to bump around a little bit before I realized that it was a a path that was going to make a lot of sense for me. But as a society, I think we probably do need you know more people that get encouraged and pulled into those sort of um, those sort of paths. I'd have to think harder about it than to just. I'd be giving a very shallow answer if I gave you you know too much on the spot here. But if there were ways to be more thoughtful about um, how do you give people experiences and opportunities as they're as they're younger, where they can dabble, learn, see what that path might might look like. And so on. So I'll give you an example. One of the things I think about with American Dream Clean is we could potentially build, you know, a franchise model. But you know, one of the things I could I could do is just try to get ten more people that are sort of like me, but 10, 10, 15 years younger. And they become sort of mini CEOs of their own little piece of American Dream Clean or something like that. And my goal becomes not in a sense just to wait to scale and to do more good and so on, but it's also a way in which we create a whole sort of new generation of social entrepreneurs, people who say, ooh, this is this is a better way to do it. I can make a dollar, I can make a living for myself, I can do, you know, I can do those things that I need to do. But at the same time as I can have this sort of meaningful work where I'm making a difference for people, it's meaningful relationships. You know, it'd just be amazing if I could somehow then do five, ten of those people, you project that forward however many years from now, and then they go and they teach their five and so on down the line. And it has this, you know, sort of much more massive ripple effect. There's certainly no reason you couldn't be more systematic in creating those kinds of experiences for young people, and then you build the kind of the future leaders that you need. If you know, if you sat me down for a day to kind of brainstorm on this stuff, my, my guess is that's that's probably the direction I would go with it. I think that that multiplier effect is interesting to think about in terms of a franchise model where you almost give people that experience to then hand down to kind of other generations to attain that similar skill set. Moving towards kind of a closing, and it's a little bit of a rapid quick fire of questions. So we're predominantly student-run, student-led, and student-volunteer organization. And one of the things that I think our students are both cognizant and also unfortunately fearful of is that the skills they're looking to learn are for an economy that won't exist even by the time they graduate. Given your experience as an entrepreneur, 
what would be one skill that you would tell students to either learn or cultivate while they're at college? It's hard to pick just one. One of the things that I think was an unnatural act for me until I had some experience at Bridgewater, we have as human beings sort of fight, fight or flight. Something goes wrong and our instinct is maybe to run in the other direction. Or what I began to cultivate at a place like Bridgewater was that when there's when there's sort of pain, when something doesn't go well, when you make a mistake, when you, you know, you're upset about something, is instead of doing that fight or flight is to just get yourself calm and centered. And once you're there, then you actually want to run in the direction of whatever it is that's causing you pain. Because that ability is just so essential. I can't tell you how many times I have something go that might otherwise discourage me. If I want to just turn a blind eye or, you know, ignore it or something, that's a recipe for disaster. And, And actually getting to a point where you can be calm and dispassionate and go at those things that are uncomfortable. I mean, there's things you have to do after that. And this is where I might start to cheat on your question a little bit and say, say more. But if you can cultivate that basic instinct of go at pain, don't run from pain, you'll, you'll be on the right track. Because then that'll set you on a discovery process. Usually if there's pain, it's, something's not going well. You might be getting some feedback you disagree with, or you might be screwing something up that's producing a bad result. So much of both our culture as well as our, as just maybe some of our natural wiring, you know, the amygdala, these things might push us in the wrong direction. That ability to go at the things that are, that are painful. And then, and then, then it becomes a test of your cleverness because can you actually figure out what the problem is and can you figure out how to diagnose and get around it and, and so on. But if you can just cultivate that basic instinct, you're on the right track. Understood. I think there's a lot of both literature and in the zeitgeist right now push towards whether it's meditation or mindfulness and kind of a mental well-being. A lot of that is not running away. It's it's more kind of accepting, embracing what your brain and its shortcomings, both emotional and rational, can be. And I think that not running away from it and embracing it is right. Both the general tenet of those movements. And and also, as you say, that's how you develop and progress. Another question for you, if you could make everyone read one book, what would that book be? Oh boy. These are great questions, Thomas. I feel inclined to, you know, sort of cheat on all of them because they, um, it's hard, it's hard to pick just one. I think for your audience, where you, where I imagine you have folks that are interested in the part of the uh, consult your community and things like that, folks that are interested in small business, perhaps entrepreneurship, I would say the most helpful lessons that I learned were were primarily at Bridgewater. I, I get to apply those day to day as I run my business and so on. But the CEO slash founder at, at Bridgewater has taken the time to actually write a book in which he now has put a lot of the things that were so essential to how he ran Bridgewater into a book. And it's called Principles. It's by Ray Dalio. And it's been wonderful advice for me. In fact, the advice I just gave a second ago, like I said, really is a is something that I got from from my time at Bridgewater. So if I had to pick just one, it, it might be that. But um, but again, it's a hard it's a hard question. I apologize. There seems to always be good question. Yeah, a want to make things in lists or cut it down to one. But I agree, it's it's an impossible kind of task. My final question for you 
and I, I don't want to put you on the spot politically, just more based on what you see both with your company and the social drive that you have. Do you think the American dream is still alive? Is it suffering or does it no longer exist today? Another great question. I appreciate how thoughtful you've been with, with all of these along the way. So if I, if I can just sort of say that. But when I think about American Dream Clean, American Dream Clean is really about restoring the, the American promise in a sense for, for folks that where we're not we're largely not delivering on that. So just to give you a, a for instance, we know I'm guessing this is true for you, it's certainly true for me. You know, folks that whose parents were in the upper uh, quartile of income, probabilistically, they, you know, 80% of their children end up with a college degree. In some sense, you know, I'm doing just, just great or something, and I've got a college degree from a wonderful college and all the rest, but it's also very much an expected outcome. And you can contrast that with, uh, let's say, the bottom quartile, where I'm going to say that it's only 9% of kids from that lowest income quartile end up with a college degree. And so there's something fundamentally that's not working. And so my view is we really need to think hard about how to restore. I could cite a lot of other statistics too. That's just sort of, sort of one. But a lot, a lot of what we think of as the American promise, be all you can be and giving people opportunities and allowing them to self-actualize and you know, having a society that, that, that reliably delivers on that. We're really, the outcomes suggest that we're not doing this. I think that if there's a reason to be optimistic, it's that increasingly people are recognizing that there's a problem there. So that, that's one, one, one thing to be optimistic about. The other thing to be optimistic about is that Americans still do have that set of beliefs. You know, we, we believe that we're a country of opportunity. We believe that you can be all that you can be. And we have that core desire. We have that aspiration. So I do think that we're, we have some work to do, but, you know, there, there are probably some good reasons to be optimistic. And you know, I certainly wouldn't be trying to do what I'm trying to do with American Dream Clean if I didn't think that there was a way through that as well. Yeah, silver lining in troubled times. And I think yeah. we'll end it there. So, JP, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me on. <laughs>